0: We are going to be in Nehemiah chapter 7 this morning, and um, this in this book, as we've been working through it um, up to this point in the story of the narrative of Nehemiah, uh, the book has been focused on Nehemiah's primary mission, to rebuild, restore the wall of Jerusalem. And this calling ha- um uh, to do something that was absolutely extraordinary, um, by God's grace, he accomplished this. Now, just think about that. About everything that, if you've been if you've been with us or if you've been listening to the. Uh, listening to the sermons online, think about everything that has happened in this book so far. So first in chapter one, we're introduced to this cupbearer of the Persian king who is a, is, a, is a Jew and he learns of the state of his people and of, of the city of Jerusalem. The walls remained in ruins despite the exiles having returned to the land many years before. And he prays, repenting of the people's collective sins and asking God to intervene on their behalf and restore them. And after some time, Nehemiah is, is serving the king and he can't hide his sorrow. He's so grieved continually by this, what he's learned about the state of Jerusalem. And the king notices And he asks them what's wrong. And after praying, Nehemiah shares not only the plight of his people and the the situation in his city, but he also boldly shares a plan to solve that problem, to allow him to go and oversee the restoration of the wall and to actually do even more than that, to provide him with both the resources, the time, and the safe passage to do it. And to everyone's amazement, and I think even to Nehemiah's, the king agrees, giving him everything he needs to complete the, the task. And so he, as he arrived in, in Jerusalem, Nehemiah had se- had several challenges that he had to face. He had to rally the people around the mission. He had to protect the people from discouragement and opposition. He had to address the ways in which the people had been mistreated and restore justice among them. While also addressing threats to his reputation and to even his own life, as we saw last week. This mission, rebuilding, restoring the wall, it seemed like an impossible task, something that could only happen if God was truly on the side of Nehemiah and the people. And after 52 days, the work was finished, the wall was restored. The impossible had been accomplished. And that leads to a question, because when we think about good storytelling, typically this if, if Nehemiah were a film or a book this would be, or a traditional book, this would be the end of the story. This would be where the credits roll and the swelling song comes in and everything, and everyone is cheering and great, it's like the end of Karate Kid from 1984 after after Daniel LaRusso lands that, uh, that crane kick. But what happens after the impossible is accomplished is the question that Nehemiah asks us. And that's what we're going to see starting here as the narrative of Nehemiah continues, because chapter six isn't the end. The completion of the wall isn't all that there is to say, because chapter seven represents a turning point, because the work in one sense is done, but in another, the work is only beginning. Because restoring the wall wasn't simply about restoring the wall, The work of restoring the wall was to lead to something greater, something more important. The work of restoring the wall was to lead to the restoration of the people. And everything that happens in the rest of this book from chapter 7 onward has that end in mind to help the people rediscover and re-embrace their identity as God's people. And so part of what we've been doing in this season at Refuge, of this season of rebuilding and reset as a church, has been to re-clarify our mission. That we are disciples who make disciples to the glory of God. That, in a respect, is the wall that we have been restoring after the last 19-plus months of crazy. And that's what we're about as a church. And truthfully... It shouldn't surprise you because it's what we've always been about as a church. And it's what every faithful church throughout space, time, history has been about. The church is and always has been disciples who make disciples to the glory of God. But like the people in Nehemiah's day, we have to rediscover what it means to be God's people, and we're going to see that the work involved in that, the work in making disciples belongs to every one of Jesus' disciples, and we're going to see that in three ways. The first is that this mission, this mission of making disciples who make disciples is a shared responsibility. The second is that we have a goal that we're working toward in that, and the third is that everyone has a part to play. And so we're gonna see this beginning in chapter 7, verses 1 to 3. And before we get there, let's let's pray just one more time. Father, again, help us to see what you, what you have to say to us this morning. Help us to be focused on this great mission that you've given us. Help us to be wise in understanding and applying this text as we seek to make disciples and as we seek to be disciples who make disciples that make disciples for your glory and our joy. Amen. All right, so... I'm going to read uh, the first three verses here of chapter 7. So, when the wall had been rebuilt and I had the doors installed, the gatekeepers, singers, and Levites were appointed. Then I put my brother Hanani in charge of Jerusalem along with Hananiah, commander of the fortress, because he was a faithful man who feared God more than most. And I said to them, do not open the gates of Jerusalem until the sun is hot and let the doors be shut and securely fastened while the guards are on duty. Station the citizens of Jerusalem as guards, some at their posts and some at their homes. So here as the wall was completed and the doors were installed, the gatekeepers, the singers and the Levites, they were appointed. Uh, These were people who were responsible for maintaining the rhythms of worship in the temple itself. But here also it seems that these three groups were given some additional responsibility. They were given responsibility to protect the temple itself. And then in verse 2, Nehemiah calls on his brother Hanani and a respected and faithful man named Hananiah. Um, that would be interesting at a party, right? These guys have very similar names, but they are separate people. Um, But he calls on these two men to help protect the city, to call on the people to guard the gates and to guard their homes, and even giving very specific instructions about when the gates should be opened and closed, um, uh, which were intended to keep the gates open only when those guarding were at their mental and physical best. If they were tired, if they were hungry, if they were distracted, they would be at risk of allowing danger to slip into the city unnoticed. And that's the point that we actually need to remember here when we think about this, that the danger to the people was not over with the walls being repaired. There were other risks, well, both from without and within. So Sanballat, Tobiah, and their crew, they were still out there plotting and scheming, and we'll see them return to the story, actually, again, in a co- just a couple of chapters. But throughout the history of God's people, we see that there were risks to their faithfulness that came not, from, not necessarily from without, but from within the community. They had judges who led the people astray. They had kings who led them into idolatry. They even had prophets who proclaimed lies in the name of God. And so these dangers ultimately led to the people being sent into exile decades before, spending 70 years as captives to the Babylonian and and later the Persian empires. And as we're going to see when we get into chapter 8 and beyond, Nehemiah was aware of just how fragile this community was. They needed to be taught well. They needed to be cared for well. They needed to be protected from those dangers that could lead them back into the sins that sent them into exile in the first place. And so Nehemiah, we, wise leader that he was, knew that he, if he was to carry out this mission of restoring the people, he needed trustworthy partners. He knew he couldn't do it alone because the pursuit of restoring the people, the pursuit of this mission, was a shared responsibility, and that's really the first the first uh, principle that we can take away from this from this section of the text for us as a church is that our pursuit of the mission that God has given us is a shared responsibility. Pursuing the mission isn't something that we do alone; it's something that we can only that can only truly be pursued in partnership together. Partnership in this sense is really what the local church and the local church ministry is all about. We work together, cooperating for the sake of our mission to be disciples who make disciples to the glory of God. And that's why from the beginning, our elders here have intentionally raised up leaders in different areas from within the congregation whether they're serving in highly visible or very behind-the-scenes capacities. And it's why the elders continue to do this and have spoken repeatedly about our need to do so to an even greater degree in recent months in many different areas of the church where it affects us on Sunday, but also throughout the week. And this partnership is also why things like community groups, why women's ministry, why men's ministry, why all of these things are so important to us as a church. These are places where we can come together to encourage and challenge one another in the gospel, to invest in one another, to help one another seek to be just a little bit more like Jesus today than we were yesterday, to follow one another as we follow Christ. Now, here's the part about that that is a little bit less fun. When we talk about this shared responsibility, when we talk about partnership, when we talk about cooperating together for the sake of the mission of making disciples, this work takes time. It's slow work, especially in certain aspects of the church. But by taking our time We're better equipped to invest one another, to help one another grow as leaders and as a part of the church before we're asked to lead anything formally. This is one of the reasons why we have uh, an apprenticing model within our community groups. We want someone to always be being invested in intentionally to see how, see who that next leader might be. But even though it's slow work, even though it can take time, it is so necessary. We can't pursue the mission of making disciples who make disciples to the glory of God on our own. We need one another because this mission is a shared responsibility. But it's not just this partnership that we need, we also have a goal that we're working toward. And this is something that we see in the next section of the text as we begin a giant list of names. But let's just listen to listen to a couple of verses here. Verses 4 and 5. The city was large and spacious, but there were few people in it, and no houses had been built yet. Then my God put it into my mind to assemble the nobles, the officials, and the people to be registered by genealogy. And I found the geneal- genealogical record of those who came back first, and I found the following written. And so after that, we get into about 60 plus verses that are just outlining name after name after name after name of families. And when we come to a list of names like this, which we do frequently in the Old Testament, it's tempting to to either skim or to skip them especially in a book like Nehemiah that already includes a a registry of names, includes a genealogy. And this genealogy that we see in chapter seven, despite being the second list of names found in Nehemiah, it serves a different purpose from the one that's in chapter three. And just as it is distinct from the nearly identical genealogy found in Ezra chapter two. And that that difference comes down to one thing. It comes down to its purpose. Nehemiah chapter 3 focused on the families who took part in rebuilding the wall. The genealogy in Ezra chapter 2 was meant to outline who returned from exile with Zerubbabel, Yeshua, Nehemiah, Azariah, and all the rest that we see outlined in in verse 7 of this book. But here... The genealogy isn't included for the sake of saying, these are the ones who came back. But to help Nehemiah answer an important question, one that actually isn't answered in this chapter and isn't answered until chapter 11, so we'll get there in a little bit. But that question is, who should live in Jerusalem? So as part of restoring the people, Nehemiah was looking to repopulate Jerusalem because Jerusalem played a central role in the life of God's people at that time. This was the home of the temple, the visible and appointed place of God's presence at that time. To live in Jerusalem would be a much-needed sign of hope for a people who had been chastened by years of captivity in foreign lands and for years after saw it languish in disarray and disrepair a restored Jerusalem perhaps would be a sign that God's favor had indeed returned to them once more. And so what does that have to do with with us? I mean, after all, we live in Tennessee. We live on the other side of the world from where this is happening. What What does a city in the ancient Near East have to do with us? Well, The fact is is that Jerusalem does continue to play a central role in our lives today. But, and this is important, it's not the physical, earthly city of the Bible or or the modern city that exists today that plays that role, because throughout the Bible, that city is used as a type, as a foreshadowing of something greater yet to come. A new Jerusalem, as the book of Revelation describes it, a heavenly city where we will dwell with God in his renewed and restored creation for all of eternity. And this is what the Bible points to as our great hope, as the the reward, if you will, as the promise that awaits us at the end of our days, to be present, to dwell with God forever. Forever. Isn't that good news? Good isn't, maybe good isn't good enough for that. That's the best news. To be with God, to dwell with Him forever. There is nothing better than that. And part of what makes this so, so good, part of why we can say that this is the best new, news ever, is that in a very real sense, this is the welcome from Jesus that He always stands ready to give that just as every generation of disciples before us has we can call on people everywhere to repent of their sins and believe that Jesus lived a perfect life that he died in their place for their sins and that he rose again from the grave defeating sin and death and that as they repent and as they believe that they are welcomed as God's beloved children destined to spend eternity with him. But it's not just eternity with God in the future that we enjoy. It's life with him right now. This is what makes it so amazing. There's no waiting for this. God isn't holding back his presence and saying, awesome, you've believed. Now, just wait, you know, wait a while. Wait, you know... 5, 10, 30, 40, 50 years, however long I've decided to give you. Live right now and wait, and then you can enjoy my presence. Instead, he is here with us in this moment, in this place, at this time. He is here with each of you who are in this room, who follow Jesus. He is here living with you and in you through his spirit, if you've believed. No matter what sins you've committed and no matter what sins you've committed this morning, he is with you. No matter what lifestyle you have lived, no matter what part of you says, yeah, but, because there's no yeah, but with the gospel. There's only good news. There's only grace. There is peace with God in the presence of God right now and forevermore for all who trust in Jesus. And as we go forward in our mission to make disciples who make disciples for the glory of God, we do so full of this hope and with this hope to offer. So let me ask you right now, is this the hope that you have right now? Is this the hope that you live with each morning, each day, each evening? Is it, what, is, it is what keeps you running in those most difficult times? I hope it is. And if it is, rejoice. This is the greatest hope in the world. And if you're not sure... Or if you know, no, this isn't my hope. In a little while, when we take communion, come and find me, come find someone here in the room. Talk to the per- a person you feel comfortable with. Let's, but let's talk, let's talk about that because we want to help you. But here's the big idea because it can't be said enough. When it comes to the mission, We have a goal that we're working toward, and that goal is to see people welcomed into the presence of God as his beloved children through the gospel. So let's consider what opportunities God might have before us and what opportunities he might provide us individually in our community groups and as a congregation in the days that are ahead. So as we continue on in, in Nehemiah chapter 7, our genealogy uh, goes from, from um, going, going from verse 8 on through 38, uh, listing out descendants according to families, and then it takes a little shift in focus beginning in verse 39, because in 39 to 60, uh, what it specifically identifies are people who are priests, singers, gatekeepers, temple servants, so forth. These are specific people who are assigned to specific tasks based on requirements outlined in the law. When the tabernacle, the tent of meeting uh, that was first built and created and established during, the, during the, the wilderness wanderings of the exodus, and again as the temple was, was built and commissioned for service, that's where these, role, these roles came from. These assignments were connected to family lines, to tribes within the people of Israel, so that only a Levite could be a priest and, and and only a certain family could be singers and so forth. Then as we move to verse 61, we see a group of people who were told were unable to prove their ancestral families and their lineage, uh, that, their, that their lineage was Israelite. And so this, again, is important for the reasons that I've already mentioned. Service in the ways prescribed under the old covenant, was dependent upon family line and Israelite lineage. If you weren't a member of a specific tribe or if you weren't an Israelite, you couldn't serve in those ways. They were, verse 64 says, disqualified from the priesthood because their entries in the genealogical records could not be found. They were even prevented from eating the the most holy things, that is, the portions of the offerings that were for the priests and for their families until the high priest could determine God's will using uh, Urim and and Thuman, the gemstones that were part of the priestly garments. Essentially, this this is the text saying that this this disqualification period was more of a not-yet- as opposed to a permanent uh, sort of disqualification, and then after the genealogy ends, summing up the total number of people who had returned from Jerusalem following the exiles in verses 60, uh, the exile in verses 66 to 69, we get another list, uh, which is the offerings from the governor, the family heads, and the people themselves to equip the priests, the singers, and everyone else for their ministry. So when we, when we think about all of that, that, just that summary that I've given you, we need to ask what to do with the back half of this chapter. And so there's a, there's a helpful principle that we need to keep top of mind here, which is this distinction between Israel and the way it functions under the Old Covenant and versus how the church is meant to function in the New. So in the Old Covenant... Israel was best described as a kingdom with priests. And because those priestly functions were tied to tribes and family, it was important, it was essential to be able to trace your family lines. Again, only certain people could serve in certain roles, and it was based on their family. It was based on their genealogy. But that's not how things work in the New Covenant. It's not how things work in the church. The gospel takes the old covenants kingdom with priests and transforms God's people into a kingdom of priests. So we don't serve based on family lines or on backgrounds. Instead, Because of the gospel and through the gospel, everyone has a role to play in the mission of the church. And we are all uniquely empowered and gifted by the Holy Spirit to play our part as disciples who make disciples to the glory of God. Some are gifted to teach the Bible in a way that helps us understand it and see Christ more fully. Some are gifted as encouragers Some are gifted as evangelists, some are gifted as administrators, some are gifted as helpers, some are gifted as musicians, and some are gifted in ways that I can't even imagine. But gifting isn't enough to determine whether or not you serve in a specific role. The same is true about passion for a specific ministry because you can feel passion and you can perhaps exhibit gifts that would be well put to use in a certain area, but it doesn't mean that it's for you, or at least that it's not for a specific season. Because when it comes to many roles in the church, in any church, there are two really important factors that come into play, our maturity in the faith and our character. Along with the specific gifts given to us by the Spirit, these are the most important ways we play our role in the mission of the church. And these are, if I can, if I can be really transparent for a moment, these are two areas where I have, uh, I've seen firsthand what happens when maturity and character um, are not in line with either giftedness or passion. Um, and it's because I didn't make that connection. See, I became a Christian 16 years ago, and within about a year of becoming a Christian, I went from being a guy who didn't care if Jesus existed, didn't care at all if Jesus was real, to a guy who was supposed to be helping other people become mature believers in a men's ministry. Let me tell you, that was not wise. I had a genuine excitement about my faith and I had a genuine faith and it was growing and I was maturing. But my genuine excitement about my faith was confused by myself and by others as a supernaturally endowed maturity of faith. That was not wise. That was certainly on my part was just arrogant. And so this is why I said earlier, we need time. It takes time to identify people. It takes time to identify your gifts. It takes time to grow in your character. And it took a long time to undo a lot of the damage that those early experiences in rushing ahead, ahead of my maturity and my character did, both to my own heart and with how they negatively affected my family. But here's the good news in this. Maturity and character, they're not fixed things. They grow and they develop and they change over time. As you you invest in the word, as you pray, as you you walk with other believers, you will find that Paul's encouragement to follow him as he followed Christ was 100% true you'll find that his word that that all scripture is inspired and profitable is true so here is the question for us to consider in applying this truth today this truth that everyone has a part to play in this mission of making disciples who make disciples to the glory of god and that That question is how do you, how has God gifted you to further the mission of making disciples? I mean, do you know your gifts? Do you know your strengths? Do you know your passions and so forth? And who are you walking with? Who are you letting see how God is at work in you to identify those things in you? as well. So when we take communion, and in your community groups this week as well, take some time to consider the question, to consider how God has uniquely wired you to be most effective in playing a role in this mission. Pray together. See what God reveals to you, because each of you, if you are a Christian, each of you has been uniquely gifted to add to what God is doing here in this church at this time for his glory. And as and in this as well take the opportunity especially in your community groups to identify what you see in someone else. Because here's the thing, identifying your gifts, identifying how God has empowered and equipped you for ministry It's not something that you you determine from a test on the internet. It's something that happens in community. It happens when people see who you are over a long period of time. So the people in your life, they are a valuable asset to this. Now, I've spent a great deal of time talking about uh, this from the perspective of a Christian, naturally. But what if you're still trying to figure out this whole, this whole Christianity thing? What if you're trying to figure out who Jesus is? What if you're not sure about whether the gospel is true, that Jesus really is the one who died and rose again for your sins? How do you participate in the life of the church? How do you participate in this mes- mission? What role can you play? And truthfully, there is a way for you to participate in this mission, and that is by repenting of your sins and turning to Jesus for salvation. That is the best way for you to participate in any of this. And maybe someone here feels that pull to repent and believe today. And if so, come again, find me, find someone else here in this room we would love to pray for you. We would love to walk you through what that means. But maybe you're not ready, ready to, to take that leap yet. What can you do? Well, again, I would encourage you, I the, just as those who, are, who do want to turn to Jesus, I would encourage you to come and talk to someone as well. Hang back while we take communion in just a minute. Because I I know I would love to answer whatever questions I can. I know that that is true for everyone else in this room as well. So when when the work of restoring the wall was completed, Nehemiah began the more important work, the truer work, the greater work of restoring the people. He began the work of helping them to rediscover and re-embrace their identity as God's people. And that's what God is doing with us here as well. And this time, as we continue to re clarify and reset here at Refuge, He's given us a mission. We are disciples who make disciples to the glory of God. That mission, the mission not just of our church, but of the church, is a shared responsibility. It's a mission that has a goal that we're working toward. And it is a mission where everyone has a part to play. So let's turn to God now and let's ask him to help us in this task, to share in the work together, to focus on that goal and to discover and embrace our parts to play. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you that you have given the church a clear mission that you have called us to be disciples who make disciples to your glory. Thank you that this is not a novel mission. Thank you that this is not something particularly unique, but it is that the mission of the church, every church that faithfully follows Jesus, no matter where they are, no matter when they are, that all of us are about this mission. God, thank you that you have given this responsibility not to one person or not to a small group of people but to every one of your people and that we have a goal that we're working toward and that we all have a part to play in that. And God, I pray that you would help us to see that part clearly today and in the days ahead and to act on that.